might help if actually this was on and so you can see what's up here. <laughs> we are in Acts chapter 20 today with a big uh, preface, kind of. <laughs> kind of in Acts chapter 20 today. It wasn't always kind of. It used to be entirely, but I felt the Lord tell me to switch up what I was writing on Friday. <laughs> Either that, or I guess I just can't for the life of me preach on a large chunk of Acts. <laughs> In any case, one of the things I, I personally love to do whenever I preach is to uh, try, as much as I'm will, able, uh, to bring you front and center into the Bible as much as we can get there. I mean, if if I could make you all flies on the wall, that would be better. <laughs> but I try the best I can. So... Interestingly enough, we're just given an itinerary today of Paul's travels. But we do know from the whole of scriptures other things that were taking place concerning Paul in this time. And these are rabbit trails that I like to take today because I find them to be worthy rabbit trails. So you aren't just reading somebody's travel plans, but you realize that Paul and those around him were real people with real situations going on. Before we dive in, just by way of reminder, when we were last in Acts, we were dealing with a riot in Ephesus, which is where Paul was. Ephesus, and that's again on the back of your map, it's about right there. This huge, riled up crowd that ended up in the Ephesian theater, basically this was their community building, for all sorts of business, and it was violent. Uh, the scripture tells us that Paul wanted to go in in the middle of it because his companions were taken in. What was going to happen to them? Ephesian rioters had had a history of violence when facing those whom uh, they considered to be opponents. He had been held back, and thankfully, the Ephesian city clerk, or for lack of better terms, who we just might call him the mayor, he showed some sense, and he revealed that all the animosities that the rioters had against the Christians really had no legal basis. So, and also no logical basis, if you read it. So the, the riot died down. I don't believe anybody was hurt. But that is the background as we enter our text today, Acts chapter 20, a whopping six verses. Uh, I invite you, if you're able to stand one last time, please do so, and let's stand in honor of reading and hearing the Word of God. Verses 1 through 6 of Acts chapter 20. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said goodbye to them and left for Macedonia. And traveling through that area and speaking many words of encouragement, he arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. And when the Jews formed a plot against him, as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. Paul was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy and Tychius, and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us in Troas. And after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we sailed from Philippi, and five days later we rejoined them in Troas, where we stayed seven days. And I know right now you're just looking at those verses and say, wow, that touches my heart deeply, Kevin. Thank you. Why don't we go ahead and pray? Father, joking aside, I believe all of us here do find every word in your scriptures there for a reason. We may not first grasp those reasons. Help us as we dive deep and do a little background search and context and comparison to other scriptures that you would bring to life for us just the things that these people were facing in these few verses and that you would use them to touch our hearts to help us to be more like you to help us to take full comfort in the lord who walks with us through the valleys of life we thank you and we ask that you would move me out of the way and say what it is you desire and we pray that all of us would have open receptive and obedient hearts and we ask this in jesus name Amen. You may be seated. Uh, 
I've told a few people that man camp, which is where I was at last weekend, seemed to have brought something for me. I don't know if it was closure or refreshment or something that I, I think I was searching for before and during my sabbatical last fall. And I basically, I guess I, I lied to myself and others when asked from people, was sabbatical good for you? And I would say yes, primarily because I hoped it had been. <laughs> and I didn't want people to find me selfish that here I took off five weeks. And honestly, deep down, still felt exhausted. A little tired, a little careless to return to the grind. covid cancer, heavy stuff that the elders of the church have been dealing with. And all of it was weighing on me. And during my sabbatical, it started off with a bang, my birthday. And uh, maybe this is a reminder to silence your cell phones. <laughs> uh, let me do that. There we go. But basically, with my birthday money at the beginning of October... I bought a CD. They still exist. Um, but it is rare for me to buy music these days because this will shock you, but I find myself listening to sermons and books <laughs> more than music anymore. But I had been a fan of this band, the Newsboys, probably for about ever. And uh, just out of a sense of loyalty, I said, these guys put a new CD out. I guess I should listen to it. And it was mid-October, and I remember I was going to town listening to it for the first time, and I came to a song that I'm not going to play all of it for you, but just a little bit of it for the first minute or so, and I'd like you to, to hear it. Let me turn this on for you. The words will show up, so if you don't appreciate the music, maybe you can appreciate the words. want you to think I was suicidal. <laughs> it wasn't an exact mirror of my feelings. I don't even say I was in a desperate place. But back in October, I did feel like I was in a valley. And it certainly expressed my heart. And as I'm about to right now, I remember I began crying. Hadn't cried in a while, and uh, I used to be—I used to be a bit more expressive with those emotions. But maybe it was woodland, or maybe it was getting older as a man, and I had slipped into real men don't cry, <laughs> rugged individualism. And I, I bring up all this to say that let us not overlook the emotions here in the Book of Acts, because the disciples in Ephesus had been taken into the theater by an angry, anti-Christian mob who felt like Christ and his followers were to blame for the loss of their livelihood and their national pride in the deity of Artemis was being disrespected. And it's because these things were true. <laughs> when you make uh, money on idolatry and you find your hope in a stone temple, 
and a bunch of statues, Christ will confront that. But even because of that, the disciples had to have been fearing for their lives. They know what happened to Christ. They likely know, know Paul's own past as a persecutor, as well as the persecuted on his travels. He was stoned. He was even left for dead once. And unlike my slow cascade of waves into the storms of my life, this was a tsunami of emotions and danger. And within a day, their lives are at stake, and it's because of their faith. As in, thanks a lot, Jesus. This is what it means to be a follower. I wonder if they had those thoughts. But we read again, when the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said goodbye to them. For Paul, this is like run-of-the-mill stuff, right? It seems like everywhere he goes, a riot ensues. Or someone puts him in jail, or he gets stoned, or something happens. And like Paul wrote his greatest encouragement, his greatest discourse on joy in the Christian life to the Philippians while he was in jail, so Paul here is no doubt happy to receive the disciples coming out of the theater happy to to receive them from what appeared to be a sticky, dangerous situation, and he encourages them. You know, Christ suffered in this way. The apostles suffered in this way in Jerusalem, Paul might say. I don't know how or why. Okay, maybe I did a little bit of the persecuting. You know, but he also could say, "I, I know the anger, I know the vehemence, I know the indignation that one can have against the way, the truth, and the life. But as... Christ endured and saved the world with his suffering. So we should endure whatever comes our way. In the aftermath of a riot of fearing for their lives, Paul encourages them with the word, and he said goodbye, and we continue, and he left for Macedonia. After traveling through that area and speaking many words of encouragement, he arrived in Greece. I mentioned briefly two weeks ago, that in this long stay in Ephesus uh, on Paul's third missionary journey, it is believed that Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, a, a letter to the church in Corinth. If you read 1 Corinthians, you, you find that the church had some issues. <laughs> to put it lightly, there's a guy sleeping with his mother. It's kind of a big deal. <laughs> The words say in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, a man has his father's wife. Brothers in Christ are taking each other to court. Uh, people are getting drunk at the communion table. It's kind of a unique church. It's a bunch of pagan Gentiles who probably never read the Torah, let alone could they spell it. So it's a unique situation, kind of. I once saw this joke going around Facebook, an old picture of Paul writing at his desk, and it said, from Paul to the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> I agree. We, we seem to know how to mess things up ourselves. Now, people don't know if it's that letter, 1 Corinthians, or another letter we don't have, but in 2 Corinthians we have evidence that Paul wrote a letter that was as hard for him to write it as it was for the church in Corinth to receive it. It caused so much grief that Paul here in Acts probably was going to go across the sea directly to Corinth. That was his next intended destination. But instead, he decided to send Titus ahead. And he feared that his enemies in Corinth would be the very church, the very church he's been chastising. And so maybe Titus would be received better and Titus would return to Paul while Paul took a longer route to go back to Corinth and give him the heads up as if it was clear for him to go to Corinth or not. Like, no, they hate you, stay away, or they seem to be getting better now, you can come to Corinth. Second Corinthians 7, 5 through 16 tells us that Paul is on this preaching circuit that we just read about, going through Macedonia, which is north of Corinth. 
And Titus returns to tell him, hey, the Corinthian Christians have repented. (laughs) It's good news. They see now why you said what you said. They're on their way to repentance. And it's believed in this time of these two verses that he's making rounds in Macedonia before he comes to Corinth that Paul is actually writing the second Corinthians as well. Most Bible teachers believe that based on the internal evidence of those two letters to Corinth we have in the Bible. And also they believe that Paul may have actually written a total of four letters to them. (laughs) The other two are lost. The Holy Spirit decided we didn't need to see those two letters. But I want you to hear heartburn over a church. (laughs) Clashes in the church. Basically, a pastoral figure who didn't want to show himself to the church for his fear of hurting them. You know, last Christmas, this will surprise you, but I actually received a Bible. Um, and this will also surprise you. It was a translation that I was just kind of beginning to get interested in. And it was in the journaling format. It had wide margins to write notes with. And I already have, I don't know, four other such Bibles that I've already started notes in them. And so I guess a sudden rush of common sense overtook me. And I said, I don't need another Bible to start journaling in. I should probably finish the other ones. And furthermore, while I had begun to get interested in this translation, I ended up making to some commitments that I say, I need to, I need to just narrow my enjoyment to two to three translations and just be done with it. So I did. And so I have this Bible left. Now, there are, believe it or not, other Bible addicts and geeks like me on Facebook. And sometimes I've been selling or swapping Bibles with fellow Bible translation addicts on the Internet. Sometimes I give them away. But I felt like the Lord lay on my heart something. And I want to also say this before I say any more. My heart here in sharing, and what I'm about to share is not to make me look good. That's not what I'm after. It's an illustration. As the president of the ministerial association, I had been in contact with a few pastors over the years who had church hurt, like Paul, a little bit, who, if they had the capability like Paul did, probably would have preferred to send a Titus to their church for a month or so in lieu of them. But unlike Paul, I'm sad to report that many pastors were the direct causes of their church hurt, Not because of strong truth that needed to be preached in Paul's case, but maybe moral failings or shortcomings of their own designs. I'm not here to talk about qualified versus unqualified pastors. I'm just here to say that it was sad, and it is sad, every time it happens. And it happened actually way too often, even in our little valley of communities here, because we pastors are people, sinful fallen, we jump the gun or make lousy decisions, Uh, we have the propensity to the sin like anyone else. It's why Paul tells Timothy, live above reproach. (laughs) We try, (laughs) we try. And the Lord brought one of these people to my mind. The Lord said, hey, this is the Bible translation that ex-pastor so-and-so liked, he studied and preached from. And he had had a falling out a few years back. He was basically forced to resign. And I'm also sad to report that from most accounts, from anybody who's had contact with him, it did some understandable damage to his faith altogether. Again, he didn't have a Titus to stand in the gap for him. And when the church hurt happens, fault is due both sides, as I believe it was in this situation. And so, I have had more than my share of excessive, opulent Bibles. (laughs) And... uh, One thing I knew about this pastor is that when he was preaching, he studied the Word. He loved the Word. And I think he would have a deep love and propensity for an excessively rich gift that, Lord willing and the Holy Spirit moving, would be a gift that he might not only receive, but perhaps cherish and perhaps the Lord might use to move his heart, to maybe closer to healing from the church hurt he has had. had. So I was able to get in touch with a few other folks who knew him, And I paid off basically a really nice rebind for this Bible, this uh, this translation and journal Bible. I sent that Bible off to the rebinder last week, and whenever I get it back, me and another local pastor are going to go track this guy down. (laughs) We have a general clue where he is, and we're going to give him this gift. And we're just given in Paul's itinerary here in Acts about that this was happening in a small sense. Hard words 
produced for a while hard hearts. Paul laments, but also rejoices in the turnaround. You probably know this passage in 2 Corinthians 7. It says, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the arrival of Titus. Right, as I was saying, Titus was the emissary. Titus was the liaison. He was the, they want to kill me because of what I said, so can you go check it out for me, Titus? Verse 7 continues, And not only by his arrival, but by the comfort he had received from you. He told us about your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced all the more. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Although I did regret it, I now see that my letter caused you sorrow, but for only a short time. And now I rejoice, not because you were made sorrowful, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you felt the sorrow that God had intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Consider what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what alarm, what longing, what zeal, what vindication. See, for Paul and the Corinthian Christians, Paul was blunt. Paul was blatant. I mean, we actually hear this in his first letter to them. I actually mentioned this already, but in 1 Corinthians 5, listen to Paul's words. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you in a kind that is intolerable even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been stricken with grief and have removed from your fellowship the man who did this? Although I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus... And I am with you in spirit, along with the power of the Lord Jesus. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Ouch. (laughs) Like, I think most of us might think we're on the side of Paul, but imagine if some outside pastoral authority, maybe like Jim Lashana, our superintendent, wrote me and said, hey, I've caught wind that so-and-so is in in your congregation and he's doing X, Y, and Z, and you're okay with that? (laughs) Why don't you expel him immediately? Like, there goes part of our family. (laughs) Hopefully we would never put up with the sort of sin that Corinth was, but what do we put up with as opposed to confronting to see change? And furthermore, I want to ask from this passage too, do you or I ever confuse selfish, self-centered guilt from conviction versus change-provoking guilt from conviction. Worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. See, I've ran into this sort of attitude, this sort of Corinthian attitude against Paul. Well, I don't listen to that pastor or I don't go to that church because there's just a heavy spirit of condemnation. Maybe, maybe there is. I know what that's like. But could it be there's not a heavy spirit of condemnation, just a heavy spirit of disobedience? See, we shouldn't change the word. We shouldn't back down from the word. Our job is not to sugarcoat or deliver the word on silver platters. And what was Paul to do in face of such flamboyant sin? And what is sad is when a Christian has risen to the boldness and courage to call out sin, But hearers of such messages have not risen to the boldness and courage of repentance. They would rather pass the blame, call down judgment, minimize, shrug off, rather than face the hard task of repentance. Thankfully, Corinth repented. Thankfully, they came up out of their valley. And instead of playing the games they were playing, well, do we really need Paul in light of Apollos? Or Peter? Or Jesus? And who is Paul? Well, no, instead they repented. They had a godly sorrow, as Paul said. So, it's understandable about Paul's church hurt and how Titus was doing what he's doing. So again, likely it's Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in Ephesus. He's writing 2 Corinthians after he sent Titus, received him back. He's traveling in Macedonia. He likely sent the letter we know as 2 Corinthians by messenger in this time. 
And then he finally arrives in Greece, so tells us the end of verse 2. And this general statement of Greece, many, if not most, believe is none other than Corinth. He finally came to Corinth. He comes to the place where all this church hurt has happened, but he has found resolution. And then verse 3, we read, he stayed there three months. Because of the feast that's mentioned in verse 6 of your passage, Paul staying put here for three months, many believe that this was actually the winter, three months of winter where travel was not normal or encouraged. It's why he's staying here for three months. And it is believed here he is writing the book of Romans to a church that he's never been to, he didn't plant, but he intends to go to as he laid back, laid out back in chapter 19, verse 21, we had read two weeks ago. Paul resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he passed through Macedonia and Achaia. That's what we're reading on right now. After I have been there, that is Jerusalem, he said, I must see Rome as well. And he's wintering in Corinth and he writes undoubtedly probably the most favored of his letters in the Bible. His letter to the church in Rome. We get connection to Paul's movement here in Acts during this time in that letter. After stating he desires to visit them, Rome, he writes in Romans 15, 25-27, he says, Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem to serve the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia, again, that's where Luke says that Paul's been moving about to preach in, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them, for if the, John, if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual blessings, they are obliged to minister to them with material blessings. Paul is collecting some money for some people in the valleys of life. And in fact, Paul had just laid it on thick for the Corinthians. Again, I told you he wrote 2 Corinthians. He wrote that not too long prior to his arriving in Corinth. If you ever read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, we have some of the most blunt language of Paul confronting the Corinthian church, urging them to give monetarily. You know, I don't preach too often, I think, on money, on offering. And I can see some of you are like, oh, great. <laughs> um, quite frankly, in the eight and a half years I've been here, by the grace of God, by the generous giving of our church, our church, I don't think, has ever been in the red, at least as long as I've been here. Furthermore, pastors uh, preaching on offering and money generally have a bad reputation. And I think most of you hopefully know me well enough, though, that I'm not afraid to touch on hot topics if the scriptures demand it. And I want you to know this. Of course, it would be nice if you or I give directly to the ministry of Woodland Friends. But if you give to a community member or if you give to another organization doing the work and will of God, glory be to God. I want you to feel comfortable, though, with giving here, too. Know this, that our money put in the offering here ensures, of course, that our facility continues to be used. And yes, it pays my salary. <laughs> but Woodland Friends Church puts out $300 a month to Evangelical Friends Mission. The Retnarajas, a missionary family in Nepal doing the work of Jesus, bringing people to Christ. Woodland Friends Church puts out $600 a month to Northwest Yearly Meeting. Our denomination, uh, whose focus is heavily on planting churches in the Northwest region. And actually, even some of that money goes right back to EFM. Because <laughs> that's where the Yearly Meeting decided uh, is best to use funds to give to the Great Commission. Woodland Friends Church has made sure that at least $100 a month is going to the Benevolent Fund, which is used and overseen by the stewards to give to people in the community when needs arise. And sometimes the Benevolent Fund is dispensed by the gathered body should a big need arise and it need to be discussed. Now, this can be everything from a hotel room for a person needing one for an evening or a high bill of a home bill or a medical need, or groceries. You can also earmark your offering Two, some make sure that they're only funding missions. Some make sure that they're only funding the benevolent fund. Some have given gifts even to other church members, but wanted to remain anonymous. I also want to let you know that I never look over the offering, unless if I need to be in there helping somebody count it. it we always use two people to count. Um, 
but I never asked Sharon who gave this week. <laughs> I, I never care to see the offering. To be honest, it just hasn't been a big concern of mine. I know some pastors who seem to pull out their hair if the offering was big or little. I figured that it's God's job to make sure the facility is still standing and, and Woodland's just doing its mission. But I want you to feel comfortable when you give here. And if you don't give it all in the offering, I do have homework for you. Go read Second Corinthians 8 and 9. That's all I'll say. I also want you to know that the yearly meeting is in a good place. It's being led by good people. I believe it's trying its best to be a large organization bent on doing the Great Commission. Two churches are being planted right now in the yearly meeting. One in the Portland area, one in the Bend area. Other ministries seem to be happening at a grassroots beginning. EFM, our missions arm, has a five-year goal to open five new fields within five years. Believe it or not, all this costs money. (laughs) Pastors and missionaries need freed up to focus on pastoring and doing missions. Travel and food expenses need to be covered. Rooms and places for churches to meet need to be covered. Jerusalem was a big city in the first century A.D., Christians were first persecuted in Jerusalem, starting with a man named Jesus. (laughs) The book of James, written by the church leader in Jerusalem after Jesus, his half-brother James, suggests that even economic persecution was taking place, likely in Jerusalem. James is teaching on not showing favoritism in the church, that is, not looking at the people who look well-dressed, showing them more attention and then minimizing or shrugging off the people who don't look so well-dressed as they come into the church. Uh, James says, Is it not the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Paul is, is receiving money all across Gentile lands, where it seems like though Christians be persecuted in Gentile lands, the legal rulers usually always seem to favor the Christians. We talked about that last time. We mentioned at the beginning that um, the the riot in Ephesus died down after a legal ruler said, hey, you have no legal basis to do this. However, the Jewish hierarchy at the capital in Jerusalem seemed to have more success in persecuting them. When it's time for Paul to leave from Corinth after he wrote the book of Romans, we find that Paul again is in danger. We pick it up in the middle of verse 3. The Jews formed a plot against him as he was about to set sail for Syria. Now, Syria is the general region where Antioch is. And again, that's the church that has sent him out on all of these missionary journeys. It's north of Jerusalem. But since the Jews formed a plot against him, he decided to go back through Macedonia. In other words, he's going to hot-footed again. Springtime was coming. And back in Acts 18, when Paul was in Corinth the first time on his second missionary journey, the Jews of the town had coordinated a legal attack on Paul, um, to which the proconsul of the area, a man named Gallio, had said, huh, well, you have no legal reasons to do anything to this man. Stop bugging me about him and go away. <laughs> like I said, in most Gentile cities... The rulers seemed to favor Christians by their rulings. But since Paul was untouchable, it could be that upon Paul's return to Corinth here, they just caught wind of his plans, and they say, well, let's ambush him on the boat. We can't do anything in Corinth. Let's just wait for him on the boat the moment he leaves Corinth. Furthermore, as I mentioned, Paul was collecting money for Jerusalem, so he's not only a target of their opposition, but he's also currently a rich one, which is why Paul heard of the plans and he changed his a potential ambush for Paul waiting at the port or on the boat would never receive Paul. So again, he decides to foot it, go around Macedonia. And some of you who are thinking about this say, yes, because ambushes can't happen on the road. <laughs> well, actually, we read in verse 4, Paul was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy and Tychius, and Trophimus from the province of Asia. There's power in numbers. Years ago, back when we all rode dinosaurs around and GPSs were not on everyone's phone, either that or I didn't have a cell phone or GPS yet, I remember taking the youth group at the Nazarene Church to Pullman. 
Now, I had I have been to Pullman now a few times, and I know the general layout now, but as a 19 or 20-something, I had never really been to Pullman. And I knew what Pullman was in Spokane, but I still didn't know my general array around there, and I'm horrible at memorizing directions. Especially in bigger towns where whenever I come in, all I worry about is traffic. <laughs> like, the part of my brain that remembers directions is like, I'm leaving, you're on your own. <laughs> so, a concert was playing at Beasley Coliseum up there, and I'm taking the youth group there. My pastor at the time said he couldn't make it. But there was one other family going, so I could follow them. And... I did get to the concert. I had a car full of teens with me. We made it into the place. They filed out, enjoyed the concert. Well, I forgot about traffic after the concert. I also forgot about the unlikelihood of being able to find and follow this family who parked who knows where in the parking lot with hundreds of other cars all trying to get out of the parking lot. It was also dark by the time we got out. Now, part of me wished I was alone because I was embarrassed. <laughs> that I couldn't remember where any direction was and would rather be alone to get out of this shameful pickle that I've made. But also, there were power in numbers. One of the youth, who sadly drowned in 2012, but he was quite the tracker. He actually went out animal tracking a lot with his dad. I don't know if he'd ever been to Pullman or not, but he was always about making mental markers as to where he was. He was only about 15 or so at the time. He led me out of Pullman by driving from the back seat just fine. Now, this is just a simple illustration to show us that there's power in numbers. <clears throat> this is why also, as profound and transcending and neat and clever and cute as it is to say, I don't need church. I have my church out in the wilderness with a Bible where it's just me and God. Well, okay, there's precedent for going to a secret place to spend time with God. But there's also just as much equal, serious, and necessary precedent to come together as God's people. It's why Paul is going around the ancient Mediterranean planting churches everywhere, not just digging up wilderness zones and saying, go out there with your Bible. Paul said that people, we as a people can bear one another's burdens. That brother of Christ, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, James that I brought up earlier, says in the community of Christ... We can pray for one another and confess our sins to one another. A church on the move needs numbers and there's power in numbers. For Luke, the author, to name these companions, we know a few of these people. They're mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. There is a Sosipater mentioned in Romans 16.21 that may be the same here as this Sopater. Aristarchus was actually one of the men in the theater in Ephesus facing potential violence. Later, he would accompany Paul to Rome and would be imprisoned alongside him. So Colossians 4.10 says, Of course we know about Timothy. Tychius serves as Paul's representative to many churches later on. Trophimus accompanies Paul to Jerusalem and Rome. I didn't cover all the people here, but the point I want us to see is that a lot of these men are the direct results of Paul's ministry. And they didn't stop once ministered, once they were ministered to. They began joining Paul and taking ministry in their own hands as they felt led by God, no doubt, or it's not beyond me to say or think as they felt led, period. I think a lot of us get so stagnant in the church pew. What can I do? Oh, Holy Spirit, fall on me. Give me a divine commission. Let me be useful. And sometimes chairs need to be stacked. Sometimes bathrooms need to be cleaned. Sometimes your neighbor who you talk to constantly and still doesn't go to church just needs to be invited. And we don't need a direct, super holy, life-altering, God's audible voice awakening to be moved by the Holy Spirit to do something that's just obvious. Like, is that okay? <laughs> some of these men, I have no doubt, Paul might have just said, hey, I need some help on this trip. Anybody willing? And without much prayer or thought, yes, sure. Because when you love God and love His mission... Sometimes it's not a discernment process that's required, right, Quaker? <laughs> Sometimes it's just, uh, yeah, <laughs> and God shows up in that. I'll give you an example. I never give you personal examples, so I'm making up for it all in one sermon. Um, man camp last week, and I had a great time. All of, men, all of you men who didn't go should go next year. But midday Saturday, 
kind of the, the, the MC or the spokesperson of the event. His name is Roy Lujan. He's been up here before. He comes up to me mid-Saturday and asks, Hey, Kevin, can you introduce me and pray for me to be the preacher tonight? Because Roy had been doing that for all the other three speakers that we had this weekend. But obviously, he would feel a little bit awkward if no one introduced him and he didn't want to introduce himself. Well, I confess here and now, as hard as it is for me to admit, I didn't pray about it before I answered Roy. (laughs) I didn't say, let me seek the Spirit's guidance (laughs) in this task that you've laid before me. No, I said, sure, yeah, I can do that. You know what happened, though? We got together that evening. The musicians started playing the music. And all of a sudden, a foreign thought entered my head. We Christians usually call that the Holy Spirit when out of a nowhere a thought occurs. You know, I could squeeze a few words about Roy, but believe it or not, mostly everybody knew Roy because he had been speaking at every gathering. But I felt the Lord say, you need to read the passage about the Valley of Dry Bones. Like I said, it was just foreign for me. Well, I was faithful in that. I, I read from Ezekiel 37 more than I introduced Roy, and then I prayed over his message. It was good. And then later on that night, another man got out, got up and pointed out the connections he had seen throughout the weekend and how Ezekiel 37 fit right in. He saw how the Lord was speaking through all these things. You know, I had just said yes to Roy. Obedience. I didn't sign up to be used by the Lord intentionally, but I believe the Lord can lay on people's hearts to do things. And other times the Lord just uses people who are already being obedient and he steps into that. Luke names all these people. Did they all prayerfully, deeply, somberly consider and accompany to accompany Paul? Did they all just, by obedience, say, sure, sounds good, let's go with Paul? Maybe there was a mixture of both. Maybe some felt more intense about it than others. But there's power in numbers. These men went on ahead and waited for us in Troas. Maybe they're making preparations to do a trip from Troas. Verse 6, And after the Feast of Unleavened Bread... We sailed from Philippi, and five days later we rejoined them in Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now, maybe you saw it, but here we pick up on some pronouns we actually haven't heard in Acts until the last time we were in Philippi, back in Acts 16. Us in Troas, or we sailed, or we rejoined them. Luke himself is a traveling companion of Paul, a missionary companion. And it is believed, as is easily deduced, as I just alluded to, that Luke had been staying in Philippi since the last time Paul had been through. Paul must have left him there, or Luke maybe felt called to do his stay there on his own volition. We don't know. One of my commentators just kind of -of matter-of-factly stated, Luke presumably served as pastor at Philippi, to which I asked, why must he be the pastor? (laughs) There's no reason. I mean, maybe he met somebody from Jerusalem and who said, hey, I knew Jesus. And Luke may have said, hey, I'm writing a book about Jesus. Could I stay a while? I don't know. It's, we are told that he's a doctor, so maybe he's just a very active layperson who served as the doctor in Philippi there. We don't know. And it's after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would happen for a week after Passover, they sailed from Philippi, actually Neapolis, because I know you're all really concerned, about what port they sailed from. (laughs) And they headed to Troas. And we'll talk about an exciting church service in Troas in uh, two weeks from now. Because I won't be able to prepare a sermon. Somebody else that you might know will be preaching next Sunday. But for now, in review, perhaps it was more present in the notes of your outline if you followed along. But the title of this sermon was Life in the Valley. It's an itinerary, I get that, and I did a lot of behind-the-scenes digging to show you that Paul was writing at least two books of the Bible during this travel time, three if you count the one he wrote in Ephesus a bit prior to where we picked up two from today. As well as he was taking an offering to Jerusalem. He was in danger of an ambush yet again. It was a valley for him. It was a valley for a lot of people. It was a valley for the Ephesian disciples who were there in the theater fearing for their lives. And they needed the encouragement that Paul brought them. It was a valley for the Corinthian church who had had to receive some strong love from Paul and Paul had to send Titus in his place to do some recon and make sure Paul's head wasn't going to be bit off when he came there to winter. It was a valley for the Christians in Jerusalem lacking money, likely persecuted and oppressed by the powers that be. 
And Paul had companions in the valley as he evaded ambush and headed to Troas. Life in the valley. I wonder if, like me last year heading into this year, I wonder if you find yourself in a valley. I just named off a few things from this passage. Fear of death. Fear from legal rulings. Church hurt and relational pain. Money problems. Ambush problems. But maybe there's something else you could add to the list of valleys. Maybe like the church hurt Corinthians, you have some sins that the Holy Spirit confronts you directly. And the Holy Spirit isn't afraid to bring it up from time to time. And you've got to decide if you're responding with worldly sorrow. Ouch, you're stepping on my toes. Don't tell me it's sin. That makes me feel bad. Or godly sorrow. You're right. I do need to change. I'm causing pain for myself and others. It's something I need to repent of. Maybe like the Ephesian disciples, there's a fear of death. Maybe it's not from legal rulers, but from the fallen bodies we find ourselves stuck in. Medical issue that doesn't look like it's getting better. Maybe like Paul, it's not an ambush, but it's betrayal. It's a relationship problem. You got enemies and you don't know why. Or you got enemies and you do know why, but it's such a mess and you don't know where to begin. Maybe you really don't know how that bill is going to be paid. Maybe you don't know how you'll eat the rest of this month. Whatever it is, you're in the valley. Furthermore, I wonder if, like me, that you've lied to yourself. Maybe you've lied to others. I got over it. I'm okay. I moved on. I got, I got past it. But you didn't. Deep down, you still realize you've just walked miles. The scenery changed, but you never got out of the valley. Even in the valley, I still believe you're good. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And the BSB would footnote us for us here, you know, one of those things that make us question our entire upbringing in church. But this is talking about a valley of deep darkness. David was alive when he wrote this, and he wasn't mourning for someone who died. He was mourning about a valley in life. Translators have given it a memorable name and and stuck to it for tradition's sake. Even though I walk through the valley, even in the valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, sometimes armies, upon gaining victory, would have a feast to celebrate their victory. And so David is saying here, though there's a war raging on right now, it's as good as done because the Lord has granted me victory. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What this psalm was for David was poetic, full of imagery, in a valley in his life. When, I don't know. Maybe it's when Saul was chasing him around Israel. Maybe it's when the son that he had from the wife he stole and murdered the husband of. Maybe when that son was dying. Uh, Maybe when Absalom was chasing him around Israel. Maybe it's when Jonathan died. Maybe it's when Absalom died. Whenever it was, David wrote about spiritual truths despite physical realities. Spiritual truths that coincided with physical realities. Friends, your valley might exist tomorrow. But the knowledge that you're being led by the staff and rod of a shepherd should be comforting. And what Christ is, is a shepherd to follow. A GPS to get out of Pullman. (laughs) What Christ is, is a provider of green pasture if your valley has been desert. A provider of waters if your valley has been dry. What Christ is, is a restorer of your soul. If your soul is hurting, He restores it. What Christ is, is your righteousness, sinner. If your valley has been brought on by your unrighteousness, cling to the righteousness of Christ. 
what Christ is, is a reason to not fear in the deepest pits of darkness in your valley. He will fight the evil. He will comfort when the circumstances give no cause for comfort. What Christ is, is victory in the face of danger. Is a table to celebrate winning when the armies look at you in confusion, knowing that the war hasn't ended, not knowing that the war was over at the cross. Amen? Let's pray. Father, um, Luke, for his purposes, as he wrote the book, just gave us a quick itinerary of things going on in the physical sense. But thank the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, you've given us other books of the Bible to put together maybe a little bit more of what Paul and those around him are experiencing at this time. And it's so easy to look at the book of Acts and think of Paul as a superhero going from city to city, not having any problems like we have. But Father, we find that the problems were all too familiar. And we pray that as Paul was maybe going from coast to coast here, we, we see that he and others were in valleys in their life. Thank you that you are the shepherd who leads us through those valleys. Father, the book of Job gives us knowledge and, and wisdom to know that sometimes people in the valleys of life would just be better to have silent comforters alongside them instead of people who come alongside them and tell them how sinful they are and what they need to do and what dots to connect and what levers to pull to get out of suffering. Father, if any of us are suffering in valleys right now, would we just cling to the shepherd, guide us through this valley, and whenever people need our ears, help us to listen more than to advise and help us to just be praying for them, to do as the word lays out, to bear their burdens. Father, if somebody needs to confess sin to us, help us to first find that as a compliment that that they would confide in us and help us to hear their sin and to be willing to walk with them through it, to pray to help them to get over it, not to judge, maybe to keep them accountable if need be. Father, if somebody needs money, but they don't come here for money, they come here to do church with us and to be part of the family. But if they have some bills that need paid, if there's something going on, would you help us to know? It's not going to happen through osmosis. You've given us lips and ears. Help us to know and be willing to help them. Whatever the situation is, whatever the valley is, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would direct them today out of the valley. It may not be over tomorrow, but give them light at the end of the tunnel. We ask and we pray also for the potluck and the pies that we're about to enjoy. We pray that the money raised would be used for good purposes. We trust that it will be. And we pray that we would have a good time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you get up, Sharon has directions. <laughs> oh. <laughs>